Howdy doody, field workers. This is Zach Johnson. Hey, everyone. I'm Mitchell Hora. Thanks to the Walton Family Foundation for helping to make this season possible. Really appreciate them coming on. That's a big deal. So we've been talking for several episodes now about this crazy conservation mojo going on in Washington County, where Mitchell is from. And we've had a few episodes looking at the guys who seem to have started this whole thing. Be sure to check out those earlier episodes because those farmers get mentioned a lot throughout the series and it will help you be able to follow along better. So if you're taking notes, you have to like start from the beginning and take your notes in order? Yeah. Make sure you got a trapper keeper so you can really organize it. That's a good idea. So today we're going to check in with some of the people that are keeping that conservation culture going. A couple of the younger guys that are now utilizing what we've learned from the older generation, a couple of buddies that I hang out with a lot that are, you know, really able to learn and now utilize social media and utilize networks beyond Washington County and really implement new ideas. Yeah, I have to imagine when you're a younger guy coming into farming and you're around this this culture like this, that you have a little bit more of, uh, I don't know, flexibility or permission to be able to, to do this kind of thing, which isn't always the case for a lot of younger farmers. So today we're talking with a couple of guys that are doing some really cool stuff. After the break, we'll hear from a seed dealer in Washington County who actually specializes in cover crops. His name is Trent Stout. But first, we're going to hear from Michael Vitito. Yeah, we talked to Michael in season two about how he's integrating livestock. It's part of his attempt to build a more regenerative system, which where he's able to really be able to implement all of those principles of soil health, not tilling, keeping cover crops, more diversity and integrating livestock. The livestock one is typically the hardest, but Michael was able to implement it on his farm, started small scale and then built it up from there. Yeah, so in this conversation, we actually get to dig deeper into his operation, like so deep that we were actually in the cow pasture when we did this. Actually in the cow pasture with the cows, chasing them around. Zach got to go chore cows. That made it in the YouTube video. I did. Would that be considered cow punching? Am I a cow puncher now? <laughs> All right, we better cut into my yeah. tell here. He's the expert, not us. You bring us in, Mitchell. Where are we sitting here? Are we still in a pasture in... In Washington? We are at the Long Creek Pasture, to be exact. Tell me more. Sitting here with Michael Vitatel. He's like a 80th generation farmer from Washington County, Iowa. <laughs> but uh, we'll let him give his actual intro. And Mike, thanks for having us out here today. Tell us a little bit about the Vitatos. They've come up a couple times here throughout our Washington County talk. And you can't really come to Washington County without meeting a Vitatel. This is the first one Zach has, has met. It's the first one I've met in person. There's yeah. about what? How many Vitatos are in Washington County? Four hundred and fifty. Is that about right? Mm, I'd I'd take the over on that. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, yeah. So I guess my name is Michael Vitato. Um, we're here at my place, Long Creek Pastures, on the banks of Long Creek, in the pasture. So literally, Long Creek Pastures, where we're at right now. Uh, so. Our, our family operation, we're primarily corn and soybeans with, um, we also have some confinement hogs. About 1,400 acres is what we run. Um, I started a cattle herd about two years ago now. So that's what the pasture's for. Um, it's kind of a whole new deal for us here on, on the operation. Um, but yeah, to, to give a little bit of background on the Vitatos, I guess. Um, I'm the first direct Vitato that you guys have met. So, yeah, the, the Vitato family, you know, you go back to my great-grandpa, the lineage from that 
involves Paul Reed, Kevin, Nick, uh, and Ken, their operation, big no-tillers. David Moeller and his brothers, uh, you know, they're big no-tillers on the equipment side of things. And then my dad and my grandpa, you know, they've been no-tilling since the 80s. And then uh, my grandpa's brother, Bill, and his boys, Tom and Jerome, you know, they've they've been in on it as well. Uh so yeah, the the Vitito family from my great my great grandpa and great grandma down has has been a big a big key player in it, I guess. So we've been talking Zach about like the network in Washington County and that you have a lot of people that you can like run ideas by. Uh-huh. That it's all happened at the family reunion. I was it's just so going to say it's easier when you just go to the family reunion and like, oh yeah, we're like trying this no-till thing. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, Washington County. Let's like County, have some like pumpkin pie. Washington County must have one Christmas party. Oh yeah, like the county just comes over yeah. and they're everybody's talking to their cousin. It's a family affair here now in Washington County. Things That's have right. gotten weird. So how far removed are you two from each other? Uh, not probably that far. No, there's some, I have no. no I, we're actually not. I don't we're think not we're related, related at all. But, but we have plenty of like cousins that have married and there's crossover there. Oh yeah, there's some. Crossover. I'm sure somewhere along the line there's some crossover. I had to leave the county to find my wife. That so. was probably a good move. Yeah, I yeah. I did as well by about. Half a mile. It counts. In one of those counties where they do a lot more tillage. They do more tillage, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the county line is the differentiator. And Michael, as a weather expert and no-till expert, how is it possible that at the county line, the weather decides to change and the climate decides to change and the soil decides to change, that when the glacier came across... It knew where Washington County was going to be millions of years later, and it decided to make the soil different. It's a phenomenon. How is that possible? It's a phenomenon. No one can explain it, but it's clearly the case. I Tell love the uncomfortable sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> so the glacier stopped at the edge of Washington County, and it just made a nice little trickle, and that has now become Long Creek. And the Vitatos said, hey, this is a nice little trickling creek. It's pretty long. We should call it Long Creek, and we should have a pasture there. And now here you are. That's right. That's right. Just had to build the house right next to the glacier as it melted, <laughs> and then just extend your family within the county. Were you guys originally grazing woolly mammoths? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose if you trace it back that far. S straight to the market. Mammoth to market. Direct to market mammoth. Grass-fed mammoth. I need to get in on that. It took big trucks. Wait, we're getting serious on we this episode. Getting, yeah. This is like deep. Okay, I'm so not sure where we're going right now. We've been talking but... about the history of Washington County. <laughs> Tell us about the Vitatos getting involved in no-till and, uh, okay. and your multi-generation farm. Yeah, so a little history with, you know, my dad, my dad and grandpa back, back when they first got started. Um you know they were they were part of that initial group that everybody's been talking to uh, back in the the 80s. Started no tilling. Um, you know they they were always pretty conservation minded back in the day. Like my grandpa, he would would have been one of the first guys to ditch the moldboard plow and go to the chisel plow. Which it's weird to think about a chisel plow as conservation tool, but compared to a moldboard, it was. Um, you know, so they were, they were doing that and then that rolled into the no-till, um, back in the eighties and then that had been working really well. And then kind of, I don't know, it would have been seven, eight years ago that they started 
playing around with some cereal rye cover crop on some of our hillier ground for erosion control purposes. And it's just ramped up from there. Um, you know, at, at this point, we covered, I want to say, around 850 acres last year with, with cereal rye ahead of our 2020 crop. Um, so that's where we're at. We're doing, we're doing rye ahead of every acre of beans, and then about a third of our corn is planted into to rye cover crop. If you don't mind sharing, how many acres are you operating? Yeah, we the the entire operation is about fourteen hundred acres. Okay, so decent size operation. Yep, good size operation, but with the diversity of the hogs and now the cattle. Yep, and there's goats and chickens running around here too. Oh, there's we, goats too. Go there's two goats. Yeah. Okay, so tell us more about like. Okay, you started digging into cover crops, but your piece of this is unique in that you've gone even beyond just cereal rye cover crop into yep. very diverse mixes, trying yep. some of these newer innovations before anybody else around here was was trying it. Yeah, so I guess to tell, to fully tell that story, I need to give a little more background on my own personal story. So out of out of high school, I went to school for engineering, uh, got an engineering degree, worked professionally as an engineer for five years before I decided I wanted to go back to the farm, get my hands dirty, yada, yada, yada. But then when I decided to come back to the farm, I didn't really know a whole lot about, you know, the nuts and bolts of farming. So I was essentially starting from scratch on my farm knowledge at that point. And uh, shortly after I came back, I want to say I'd been around for about a year and a half when Mitchell started Continuum Ag and started having some meetings and whatnot just when when that was kicking off. And that was that was my initial introduction to soil health was with some of Mitchell's meetings. And we'd obviously been no-tilling and doing cover crops and whatnot, but I didn't really know a whole lot about it. So that was over the winter. That winter I dug into things a lot and kind of fell into the soil health rabbit hole and, and haven't been able to find my way out. But part of that has been... Um, you know, learning about the importance of diversity and, and the livestock integration and, and all of all of the key aspects of the thing above and beyond just no-till and cereal rye and, and all of, you know, there's a lot more that goes into it than just that. So that was where we started playing around with interseeding cover crops into corn as a way to get more diversity. Um, so we were, we were going out and when the corn was knee-high or even shorter, we were drilling anywhere from five to 15-way mixes into the corn, just on a few acres here and there to see how it worked. Um, we did that a few times. Had had some success, had some failure. Um, even in our failures, we learned a lot and were able to kind of see ways that we could make that system work in other uh, avenues, I guess you could say. And that's, that's kind of where the cattle operation came from because with that interseeded mix into the corn, I was able to see how everything kind of played together and just see what kind of forage production potential some of this ground has. Um, and that's, that's kind of where the cattle operation came from. And that's what essentially got me convinced that I needed to start start that from scratch and get the livestock integration going because before that I was just like we don't have any fence it's a lot of work you know surely we can just do it with plants I don't need to have the livestock and and this and that so 
so that's kind of how that all that all shook down but yeah you mentioned a, a little bit about how it's it's more than just no-till and cover crop and yeah. then you got into cattle so can you tell us where your cattle herd is at today and then how that works into what you're talking about when you say that it's it comes down to more than no-till and cover crops well i guess when when you look at the cattle operation specifically uh as being something above and beyond um it's it's a the cattle is an enterprise that can be managed to I guess you could say manipulate the system in in ways that you can't really do um, just with row crops. You know, obviously we can utilize perennials. Um, we can utilize numerous different species that aren't really all that feasible to utilize in a in a row crop system. Um, and then obviously with the cattle, we're getting with the cattle being grazing cattle not feedlot cattle, we're getting the impact directly on the ground, whether it be the, the hoof impact, you know, the area that we're recording this right now had six foot tall reeds canary grass three days ago, and now it's completely flat. We got a mat on the ground and we'll have regrowth coming up through that. So you see that, and you know, all I had to do was just set up some poly wire around it and they did the rest of the work. So there's that, that type of impact. There's the, the manure on the ground, um, the urine on the ground, the saliva from the cattle's mouths, that's all biology that's getting put directly onto the soil um, or indirectly onto the soil, I guess, with the saliva. But, but still, it's, it's stimulating things that you don't get by not having the livestock on the ground. So that's, you know, that's something that I think is very important and kind of underemphasized in a lot of cases. But it, it does really good things for for the soil and for the system if you stick with it. Um, as so far as how that works into the operation as a whole, right now things are still kind of in a developmental stage. But eventually, eventually what I would like to do would be to have my grass finisher cattle be essentially a fallow year for our row crop ground. So we would be able to take a year and do season-long grazing on a on a row crop field in our primary corn soybean rotation um so that's just a way to add diversity into the mix and stimulate biology for one year and then we go right back to where we were before so that's that's where i would like to get it to and then obviously have some perennial pastures and whatnot as well um but well, that's that's kind of the game plan as far as how to work it into the operation. Walk us through though, like from the very beginning, how many head did you buy at the beginning? How many head are you up to here now? And but there was some thought process in on what type of cattle and everything too. These are not these are not just normal feedlot kind of cows. Not not entirely. Um, so to I guess to start, I've got primarily built to Galloways is the the breed that I have. Um, part of the reason I got it is because they look cool with their, with their white belts and, and whatnot. So that, that has something to do with it from a direct marketing standpoint, because they have a unique look to them. So it draws people attention, especially being right on the highway. People see them and they're like, Oh, I love your Oreo cows. So there's that, there's that aspect of it from a marketing standpoint, but also they are a British breed. So they're similar to Angus. Uh, they were developed kind of in the poorer areas um, with poorer forages. So they are supposed to be better at converting forage into beef. Um, 
so being a grass-fed herd, that was something that was important to me, more so than converting grain into beef. Um, so, so that kind of sums up why I went with the Belties. Um, they're good mothers as well, and just kind of hardy animals, easy birthers. Mostly, you thought they were cute. Though. That's mostly, mostly it was the belt, but there was the other stuff that I'm like, well, there you go. There, we'll go with that. They're pretty fluffy too. Yeah, and I am a big fan of Oreos. Yeah. So, <laughs> me too. Sold. Sold. Definitely. Yes, sold. Definitely. Uh, can you understand them with their British accents? It can be a little challenging sometimes. You know, the the moo, it just. It finishes different. It yeah. starts the same, but they finish different. Right. And do you have to have like tea bags in the water, or like <laughs> is that just a, like a side like that sometimes happens? I they I mean, they this have is a real like their this tea is, a real is free choice. It's free choice. Oh, they, free they, choice. They, yeah. Cool. But so in 20, 2018 was when I started it. Uh, I bought three steers and two bred cows, and that was all I had. Um, now we're up to. As of two days ago, we're up to 33 total animals, including the steers and the cows and the baby calves and everything. So, yeah, we've we've ramped it up fairly quick. But is there know. a number in mind for a goal, or is that something you can't you can't really put a number on it? it can't really put a number on it. You know, it's kind of like asking someone, "Well, how many acres do you want to farm?" You know, if you could. You know, I, I always just say all of them. Well, I I don't necessarily want to say that, but. As as long as it's, you know, as long as it's profitable and not putting a big burden on everything else and straining things in ways that we don't want to, then you know, I don't I don't see any reason to not keep building it to a certain point, anyways. But um, yeah, because what I've found, the amount of labor that I'm doing with 33 animals, especially if right now I have them in two groups, so it's a little bit more labor. But when I have everybody in one group, the labor for 33 animals in one group isn't a lot more than what it was for five animals in one group. You know, it's a bigger scale, but you can make your fence wires, you know, you can set it up a little differently, just bigger areas and and whatnot. It, it is a little bit more work, but it's... But it just becomes more efficient. It's more efficient per animal, for sure, the more animals that you get. How do... Uh, have you really thought about getting like now you have the goats and you have the chickens? Do those actually tie in with the row crop system, or that's just kind of a side deal? Stuff? They're just for fun. I mean, we've got two, we've got two Nigerian dwarf goats. They're my wife's pets. They're not, you know, they're not meat goats or anything like that. They'll be around for a long time. And then the chickens, um, the chickens. I think, I think I can at some point build my chicken numbers they're they're laying hens I, I think i could also do some meat birds um and work those in with the cattle you know i've got you look over i've got a portable shade that i move around for the cattle because i don't really have any trees for shade so i think i could build a chicken house into the portable shade and then just have the chickens running with the cattle and then they go around and and scratch the cow pies out and spread that out that way annie doesn't set her chair in them um but I think that's something that could work in together, especially with the cattle, the the beef direct marketing aspect of the business. You know, it helps build your customer base. It's a lot easier to get someone to buy a dozen eggs for $2 than it is to get someone to buy a quarter of beef for, you know, hundreds of dollars. Uh, so it opens up your customer base and gets you involved with people. And, you know, it 
it's just a way to kind of get your foot in the door with with more people on the same acres, I guess. So who gathers the goat eggs every day? <laughs> Dwarf they, they Nigerian eat them. goat eggs. They, they eat their eggs. <laughs> I've been excited to ask that for two minutes. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such thing. Talk about the generations before you and what, what they had to do with the involvement of where you're at today. Right. Um, so, like I mentioned before, my dad and grandpa, they they were early adopters for a lot of conservation practices, uh, whether it be, I mentioned the, the chisel plow versus the mold, moldboard plow earlier, and then the no-till when they adopted that in the 80s. Um, you know, that was... Adopting no-till in the 80s was a pretty big step. Uh, you know, you think about what they were up against at that point in time. That was a pretty big leap of faith. And I, I know there was a lot of work that went into that, getting equipment set up properly, um, going to field days to see what other people that had already adopted it, um, seeing seeing what those guys were up to. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a big step for for our operation. And, you know... Seeing seeing the earthworm populations bump up on our fields since that happened compared to some neighboring fields that maybe haven't had the no-till going on for as long. Um, and then they were they were already working on adopting cover crops before I came back to the operation. So they were already looking for the next step and looking for ways they could continue to improve because on not that we have a lot of hillier ground, but some of our some of our C and, and D slope fields that we have, we're still having erosion problems with even with no-till. So trying to find ways to address those issues, I guess, would have been, you know, the next step at that point in time. And so that was how we kind of got our foot in the door on cover crops and started started utilizing them. So for example, the field right behind us here has some C and D slopes on it. That was one of the first fields that we put cover crops on because there's erosion erosion concerns and, and whatnot on that field. Since we got more experience with, with cover crops on fields that had erosion issues, then we started kind of rolling those into some of our flatter fields, and we've started to see how a living cover crop of cereal rye in the spring can really help address excess water and excess moisture conditions that we run into on some of our heavier prairie top flat soils that we farm. Um, and so that's where we're at now is we're starting to implement cover crops on all of our acres, whether it's got erosion concerns or not, because we're seeing benefits from the water management standpoint and some of the things that we come to uh, that we have to deal with in the spring on those fields. So, uh, so your dad and grandpa obviously were super early into this riding kind of that initial wave that we've learned a lot about here through this trip. Did that make them more open-minded now to some of the other things that you've brought back into the operation or what's their mentality been? I would say so. They, they've kind of given me enough rope to hang myself, I guess you could say, where they let me go and do some stuff that a lot of guys wouldn't allow to happen on their operations. And, you know, that's where, like, you look at the interceding thing. That was some pretty wild and crazy stuff that we were doing at that point in time. And um, we still have plenty of wild and crazy stuff going on around other than just interceding. But, um, yeah, they've been very open to new stuff. Uh, 
as far as what what practices we're trying on the operation and and whatnot. And you know, obviously, we're up to 850 acres of of cereal rye last fall. You know, that doesn't just happen if someone's completely pushing against it. You know, so. But I think a key thing there, like to to a lot of what Zach and I talk about, of course, is you were able to come in and learn about these new things because you weren't super bogged down with all the rest of the day-to-day farm activities. That was pretty much covered by your dad, covered by your grandpa. Yeah, you have to help in the busy time, but a lot of the the hardcore day-to-day, you have a little bit more flexibility to go and say, okay, I'm going to go try some something new or build something new because you have a little bit more of the, the timing and person flexibility to go and do something. That's a huge thing for my family's operation too. Right. To be able to have the labor there. Yeah, the labor. To sustain where you're at while you have some of the flexibility to be able to try to, to mess with it. To, yeah. to try to do something to move forward. Because like, yeah. to your, I mean, Zach, like what you're talking about, you know, is you can't really take a lot of your time to go mess with 40 acres because you and your dad are super busy. Right. Where like in Michael's situation or my situation, our dads can go and manage the whole farm and then we'll just mess around with this new idea. You just play Nintendo and, all day. Yeah, well, that's usually... But um, to a certain extent, hang on yeah. I mean, obviously, we've got a lot going on with our other livestock and and obviously the the rest of the grain operation and whatnot too. You know, I have to manage my time accordingly on on that aspect. But you can't just sit out here and pet the cows all day. Or I mean, us. I like to, but I try I try to you know get other stuff done as well. But you know, from from the from the labor management aspect, you know, obviously. Getting cover crops established in the fall is a big challenge, a big challenge. And that's no different for any operation, really. Um, You know, when we first started doing covers, we were just getting everything flown on, uh, you know, ahead of harvest. So we weren't the ones actually out there running a drill or anything after after harvest or at harvest time. So it wasn't a big, you know, there was really no difference in labor in the fall. But... Once we switched from getting everything aerial applied to using a drill, um, essentially because we were trying to get a better stand, more consistent stand, I guess you could say, um, than the aerial application, then all of a sudden, you know, we've got extra time and extra equipment that we need to be running in the fall during an already busy time because in the fall we've got harvest and as soon as we're done harvesting or even during harvest, sometimes we have to switch over and start hauling manure because we're hauling manure all the way up until the ground freezes and even past freeze up sometimes. So we're pretty busy in the fall. You know, there, there's a lot of times where, uh, you know, working 18 hour days nonstop from end of September all the way through December. And so it's been, it has been a challenge to get cover crops established for us, but we've started making it a priority where, you know, at first, at first it was, we'd harvest all day, get the wet bin full, and then I'd unhook one of the grain carts and go hook up to the drill, and I'd drill until the cows come home, and then get up in the morning and be right back at it again, and it would just repeat for, you know, a week or whatever. Uh, two years ago, I bought a 40-foot drill so I can cover twice as many acres or more, I guess, Um when I'm out drilling, because a lot of the times it is, it's not go out in the middle of the day and drill rye. 
during the day because we're harvesting during the day. And so it's, you hook up to the drill or you've already got the drill hooked up, you go fill it up at eight or nine o'clock at night. Go, go fill the drill up at eight or nine o'clock at night and drill until midnight or 2 a.m. or whatever. And, you know, it, it puts stress on things for sure. But we're at the point now where we've seen the benefits of it that we're starting to try and get plans together to be able to have the drill running during the day so you don't have to kill yourself to get the stuff in the ground and whatnot. You know, we're making it more of a priority. And part of that has something to do with, you know, we're learning better ways to make it, you know, make it pay for itself, whether it be through reduced herbicides or the, the water control and, and everything else. But we're seeing the benefits from it. So we're starting to make it more of a priority to the point where, you know, it's not something where, you know, Michael has to go kill himself to get it done. You know, maybe we get a part-time guy in to come run the drill or, you know, however we make it work. But that's kind of where we're getting to on our operation. Why your son is like three years old now, he ought to be able to go run it here this fall, right? Maybe, yeah. All right, good. He's probably getting close. Getting there. It makes me feel a little bit better hearing from somebody 600 miles south of me that they have problems getting cover crop established in the fall. Because that's one of the things that we've had issues with. I've tried to establish cover crops in areas where we're, we're basically trying to reduce erosion in the wind, right. that wind erosion. Yep. And so we've tried flying the cover crops on. Granted, that is all we've tried is flying them on. Mm. But we have had zero success with it. You almost can't find a plant. Right. And we've tried different dates. We've had perfect weather. We've had rain. We've tried different crops. We, the one thing we haven't done, which I know I'll get crucified for, is we have not tried rye. Yeah. And that's because dad is terrified of having rye in the fields. He doesn't think we'll be able to kill it off very well. And so we've tried other mixes and have not had any luck with it. But but it does it does make me feel a little bit better to know somebody that's actually doing it has struggles with, well, we don't have another tractor to pull a drill. We don't have another guy to be planting during the day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's difficult. You're trying to harvest. You're trying to get everything done. That's yeah. You got to fill those, those grain yeah. bin piggy banks, right? Right. And it's time to exactly. do that. The last thing you want to do is unhook the grain cart and go plant a cover crop yeah. that may or may not be worth yep. it. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's, you know, that's where, you know, I was kind of the catalyst on, we're going to get this done. We're going to, we're going to do this. And, you know, I was the one that was out drilling till the cows come home. You know, literally three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. All five of them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now thirty-three. That was that was mostly before I had cattle, um, but but yeah, that was that was you know I think back to those days we because we still had my dad bought a seven fifty drill back in the nineties to no till beans into or no till beans with, and we still had it, and so that was what we went and started drilling cover crops with, and it was twenty foot wide, and you know you get you just get dizzy running a twenty foot implement across hundreds of acres in the wee hours of the morning because it's you know you're going back and forth back and forth back and forth and feel like you're getting nothing yeah done you're and... just well you're not getting anything done is the thing so now that i got a 40 foot drill it makes it a little bit better and i can actually get quite a bit of stuff done you know per hour that i'm out there it makes my time worth it more and and everything else so we still run everything with a 20 foot drill but that's okay yeah I... but but we have, we are able to kind of split up the work to be able to do it too. And I mean, we'll start planting cover crop and, you know, September 20th and finish December 5th too. And yeah, just, it's just kind of, you do it when you can do it. And yep. so we've, we've been trying to 
stay as current as we possibly can with our drill behind the combine. And that doesn't necessarily mean every night that we get done combining, I go drill some. It's more, you know, we get a decent chunk combined over here. Then we go get that all drilled and kind of get caught up, you know, in a day or two or a night or two, whatever it is. Um, but try and be getting it done as, as quick as we can. Um, the drill obviously is going to work better the fresher the corn stalks are. Like if you can get the drill through it before you get a rain on it, the disc openers will cut through the corn stalks and corn stover a lot better than it does after it gets rained on and kind of gets matted down and everything. So that makes a difference I've found. Um, but there are people in the area, you know, the guy that was just honking going by, Michael Cavan, they, they... How's he related to you? <laughs> he's not, but they... They're, <laughs> first, they're, name, they're, first name is yep, the relationship. Yep. First generation to the... To the county, probably then, huh? No. Oh, but they're both named Michael, so there that's just but basically they, related. They <laughs> they farm they farm quite a few more acres than we do, and um, they've they've they they're drilling everything as well, and they've they've maybe struggled a little bit to stay current with the drill because their spread their labor spread really thin as well, and and they're kind of you know. A little newer to the cover crop thing but they're seeing the same benefits that we are so they're making it more of a priority for their operation but but they're they've been maybe not as current with their drill behind the combine and then sometimes you get frosted out and you can't get back into the field but they've been willing to go out and drill rye i think he did some in January this year. Some in January. I know he's done some on Christmas Eve. He did as well. some. On, he's done some so in December. So obviously the top of the ground is frozen at that point. Yeah. Well, he's he'll get a window where the top is thawed just out, thawed enough, and then you know we might not have deep frost, but there'll just be like a little crust of frost on the top, but then it's thawed underneath, and he'll go drag the drill across it. And so obviously that's not going to germinate and do anything until the spring. But they've had enough success with it that they're still doing it. And, you know, they usually don't plant their beans until end of May, middle of May at the earliest. So they give it time to grow anyways. But, you know, that's that's them finding a way to make it work on their operation. Um, and it's working fine for them. They're, they're looking at other ways to do it to maybe stay a little more current and, and not, you know, not have to drill as much. But. So I want to pivot back to like more Washington County at large, but also really focusing on the equipment side of things. We've talked a lot about that throughout this trip. You've done a lot of tinkering with equipment, but mm -hmm. how has some of the other local resources or just, and obviously you're an engineer. I mean, you know how to tinker with stuff, but how have you been able to lean into other people to learn about equipment and modifications of equipment? Yeah. So, um, Obviously, guys like David Muller knows about everything you can possibly know about setting up a planter for no-till. Um, same with Paul Reed and, and Kevin and, and those guys. Um, you know, obviously, they're all relatives of mine, so I've got their phone numbers pretty much on speed dial to, to bounce bounce ideas off of them, bounce questions off of them. Uh, I know, like, there's a lot of guys in the area that have crust buster drills, um, whether it be for drilling beans and then also co cover crop. But that's what I went with was a crust buster uh, 4740. And so there's a lot of knowledge on those pieces of equipment in the area to 
ask questions about because I didn't know anything about them when I got that it. Type of, so your drill is pretty minimally invasive. Yep. You guys, even your your manure application equipment is minimally invasive. We haven't even really talked about that for Washington County, but that's a Washington County innovation kind of deal too, I believe, isn't yep. it? Yep. Yeah, so our manure as well, we're using the VTI Coulter injectors, so it's just a wavy Coulter with closing wheels. Um, it works pretty good. It's it's almost like strip till, where you get a, a nice nutrient band, and you know if you can if you can keep if you can keep your tank on your AB line and plant into those manure strips, we've had really good luck with that. Um, it can be a bit of a challenge when you get numerous different tank operators in a field at the same time to keep everybody organized and in the same spot. So that's that's the biggest challenge from that. But yeah, that that technology. VTI is owned by Phil Reed and Cameron. They're just our next door neighbor right right up the road. So, um, you know, it's nice to have more resources even like that close by as well. So what's interesting there though is like, okay, yeah, there was even the invention of some of this equipment for no-till yeah. manure application equipment, very minimally invasive. It barely opens up much of a slot at all for putting manure in. And then you can plant right on top of that if you have your GPS dialed in, or if you're a good enough sorted. driver. Yep. But it's still getting the manure below the soil, so you're you're, you're banding the nutrients mm -hmm. down into the yep. soil. And then and then you get into so the new hot thing in corn is 60 inch corn, right, Mitchell? Like everybody's Never. talking about 60 inch corn. It's a fad. So so last year we did a little bit of 60 inch corn, uh, primarily for interseeding purposes because we were having problems with our interseeding getting shaded out by our 30 inch corn before the end of the season and then we go to combine it and nothing's there so i was like well the 60 inch corn you know we'll have more sunlight getting down there so we did that last year it worked okay we had some challenges with it um but when i was out walking the field one day i got to looking at it and i was looking at the row spacing and I just kind of scratched my head and I'm like, you know what? We could we could get our manure tank down in between these 60-inch rows since we don't have, you know, 30s everywhere because we've got the big floater tires on the manure tank. So what we did this year on the 60s that are right behind us here, we actually side-dressed hog manure after the corn was planted on, on that corn, um, on the 60s. So that's something that I think has a lot of value from a nutrient management standpoint, water quality standpoint, because what's what's the four R's? Yeah, the right time and the yeah. right place and the right product. The right time is the, is the struggle, obviously, for hog manure, because a lot of the times we're putting it out in the fall, and, you know, last I checked, corn's not going to take it up for quite a while. So it's not really the right time to be putting it out, other than the fact that, after the application equipment goes across the field, we get free stalls to get some of the compaction worked out and and all that stuff. But you know, we've we get you get a wet spring and we've seen tremendous nitrogen losses on that manure. And obviously it's not good for our bottom dollar, but it's also not good for the water quality standpoint because we're losing that nitrogen and that's going into the water system. Um, and it's just bad for our neighbors downstream. So trying to shore up problems like that you know 
the side dress hog manure, I think, is is something that can that can help tremendously with that. Um, and that was just kind of something that we stumbled upon by accident, but we really like what we're seeing from it. Um, Sometimes that's how innovation happens. Yeah. So you, you're driving between these wide row corn rows. Yep. And you're knifing that that fertilizer, that manure, right in there. So this year, this year. With the way our bar is set up on our tank, we just surface applied it because we didn't have our spacing on our manure bar. It would have been right on top of the corn rows. Okay. So we kept the bar up out of the ground and then just, we were just put it on top. just right on top. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I, I think, well, we don't have one right now, but I, it's something, you know, we'll see how everything shakes out for harvest in the fall as far as what our yields are and whatnot. So... Yeah, last kind of stuff like, you know, what is kind of your vision of where this goes? How do we continue to scale what has happened here in Washington County? You know, and and what's your view as obviously a you know, young guy like Zach and myself too on where do, where does this go? Where what do you think is the future going to yeah. look like in this? Well, I guess I think in my in my mind and on our operation, cover crops aren't a fad. It's they're here to stay. You know, we we've invested in equipment and infrastructure to make that happen. Um, I think it's I think resistant weeds, herbicide resistant weeds, are going to force a lot of people's hands to start implementing some of this stuff uh, for their weed control program. Just not really out of choice, but out of necessity. Um, as as some of these new traits that we have start to develop resistance like Roundup did, um, I, I think that's going to force some people's hands. And at that point, you know, it's going to get, uh, it's going to be implemented on more and more acres at that point. Uh, but yeah, I, I think cereal rye ahead of soybeans is kind of the go-to easy button for cover crop adoption on a wide scale. It's kind of the, it's the best rotational sequence. It's the easiest one to manage for, for new people. And, you know, it's kind of a a home run for us on our operation. That's Michael Vitito. We'll be back after a short break. And we are back now with Trent Stout, who is a seed dealer in Washington County, Iowa. Yeah, Trent has been able to really become a leader when it comes to the cover crop seed side of things. They started out by just selling corn and soybean seeds, but now cover crop has really been a new niche for them. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation we had with Trent. Yeah, so uh, I own a business called Stout Seed. We we primarily uh, work within the cover crop space and and try to you know do some consulting and educating on on soil health as well as you know when we originally started in 1993 we were just primarily like a corn and soybean company but now we've kind of evolved into a lot of different sectors um, within our own farming operation you know we farm about 2,300 acres in southeast Iowa um, and. Uh, we have the we do vegetable production as well, where we have retail locations, uh, 12, 13 retail locations across southeast Iowa, and then uh, also the seed business. So there's, you know, it's just a standard family farm where we, we have many enterprises and it just kind of evolves day after day. Okay, so you said stout 
seed started in 1993. We've been talking with a lot of other folks in Washington County about the initiatives going on well before even that time frame. How did Stout Seeds kind of come about? Was it the farm first and then it was just start selling seed and then it evolved from there? Give a little bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, I think my dad started in 93 when with a family of four and, you know, trying to make ends meet. You know, we, we were a pretty standard farm operation at that point. We were running about three to four, sometimes up to 600 head of cattle uh, and also farming, you know, about 800, uh, 1,000 acres. And, you know, mom stayed at home and watched the kids. It's just pretty pretty traditional sense of a, of a farm here in Iowa. And one day we had an opportunity to, to get involved with seed selling. I think my dad just looked at it as a, you know, little passive income, something he could do on the side as many people do. Um, and then when I came back from college and kind of spread my wings in the world and then decided maybe, you know, farming, you know, as many of us have done, you know, kind of go out and then come back to the farm. This was an opportunity for me to get involved as my two other brothers were already, you know, farming full-time row cropping. And, you know, there's just not a lot of avenues, it seems like, for kids to go to college and then come back if you have a large family. And so this is something that I was interested in. And it was something I could be a part of the operation. So, so that's family, how it started. The family farm is still alive. Family. You guys are still farming, and you just found this other way for diversification in your operation. Yeah, I mean, it's changed. You know, I mean, we we pretty much have got out of hogs and, and cattle um, and gone strictly to row cropping. We do, like I said, integrate. we have integrated uh, vegetables where we do retail stands uh, around southeast Iowa. So we kind of have brothers that are more involved with certain aspects. My, my youngest brother is more involved on the row cropping aspect. Uh, my oldest brother does a lot of the vegetable production, and and that's kind of his main focus. And uh, I do the seed the seed business, and uh, I'm not sure what my dad does. He just, just boss everybody, so you know that's just kind of how it works. That we call that the firefighter. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's running around putting out the fires that everybody else is leaving behind him. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think a lot of times he's causing a lot of fires for Trent though, too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's probably always a few times that all three of us would wish he'd spend a little bit more time on the other part of the operation but uh you know it's good to have him involved and uh, you know i mean you you know it's one of those things that uh you'll you know you'll you'll appreciate that Uh, you always appreciate it every year that goes on so so as the business has evolved and stuff now obviously you guys have been able to kind of really find a niche here in washington county and kind of writing the Trent, you and I have obviously known each other for a long time, and we talk a lot about this Washington County brand. Mm-hmm. How has that impacted the business, and how have you guys been able to really see that coming? Like, what are those conscious decisions that you're making to modify the company? Yeah, I mean, well, when we look at Washington County, just as a as a perspective for those that would maybe not know Washington County, it's kind of an interesting collision of... Uh, conservatism versus like ultra non-conservatism right and so you have people that are very heavy like tillage type guys and then you have guys that feel that planting corn is almost too much disturbance to the ground right and so you have these this really collective spectrum here of people that um, just think differently but we have a lot of hog production we have a lot of guys with manure management plans uh and i know you've talked with some other people this week that have given you the history of no-till and how that's really been a pretty strong uh perspective here for a lot of guys so when you start working with you know manure management plans and you start having heavy no-till guys you know cover crops was something that was just a easy 
adoption here because you have guys that are already focused on some of these larger uh, agricultural world issues of nitrate leaching. And uh, so it's just kind of uh, in their mind frame already um, for this conservative approach, you know, this conservationist approach. One thing that we've talked about before is just Washington County is really unique in the sense that the sharing of information between farmers is so open. You know, guys are not concerned about sharing their failures uh, in a sense that it's not a negative. The guys in Washington County on the no-till platform hung in there and tried to make it work. Other counties, if they didn't have that support system, it was just easy to, you know what, let's just go back to the way that we did it before. It's a collective effort. You have to have all of these different entities. You have to have somebody in the retail seed space who understands and is committed to that aspect. You have to have somebody in the equipment space that's that understands is committed to that aspect. You have to have someone in the NRCS office that's committed to making this work and, and trying to find ways to help people make this work. And, and that's what we have here. And that when one of those pieces falls apart in another county, I've just seen that it's easy to gravitate away from making these adoptions work. You know, sure, you could talk about soil types and geography all day if you want, but the fact is, is that puzzle, those puzzle pieces are not all in place in a lot of other areas. And one of those puzzle pieces I wanted to ask you about, Trent, is with the NRCS office, we were looking at some of the cover crop cost share numbers, and I'm sure you have plenty of conversations with your customers about, here's how you get cost share, here's how it works in Washington County, but what are some of the stories about how signing up for the Iowa IDALS cost share program works in other counties? Well, a lot of times guys don't even know about it. And that's, I guess, essentially hits on what we've just been talking about, right? It's about, it's about passing of information and how easily information can travel through the the farming community. And so I'll get a lot of calls from neighboring counties or outside of the county or even outside of the state, right? And it's, uh, okay, what is available? You know, it's just trying to have that education piece on what is available to you on so many acres or these different programs or the watershed programs or the equip programs. Or, I mean, there's so much money that's out there in some sense for a guy to get his feet wet and then at some level to even sustain that depending on geography. And so it's just about education on that. On that. What are the, like, what's your advice on what do you think needs to be done? How, how can more farmers become aware? Listen to the Fieldwork podcast. Yeah, that I mean, I, number one. That'd be right, awesome. yeah, yeah. Um, but besides that. <laughs> well, I think you have a changing of generations, right? We have a changing of generations on the farm. Uh, you have a changing of generation happening in the NRCS offices. You just have a changing of generation in, farming, in the farming community uh, in general. And so it may become a solution in which... As time goes by, it become that problem kind of fixes itself just because you're going to have more awareness to it. People are more exposed to it. Um, but if you have somebody who's just wanting to pass the time, and I'm not trying to say that that's what's happening here, but if you have somebody that's just you know punching the clock and waiting to go, you know, get a paycheck, right? Like they're not they're not going to be somebody who's going to help move the peg on this. It's almost a little bit, you know, you keep coming back to that. It's almost a little bit like we're we're learning to farm again. Well, you know, like you're changing the system, ago. right? You're, you're, you're changing a system. When you're asking a person to make an adoption, such as like cover crops or make an adoption such as no-till, you have to be willing to be in that uh, from the beginning to the end because you're asking a person 
to do something that potentially affects their livelihood, right? Like there, there's no guarantees that this is going to be the answer in the sense that like all of a sudden you're going to produce more bushels of corn or this is going to be a revenue answer. Like there's most likely probably going to be some problems and you have to like have a certain level of responsibility with that in my sense. And I think that if you're just out there because this is the next hottest, latest thing and you're just, you know, trying to take orders per se, right. To try to capture some revenue on this fad per se, right. Like, you're going to have, there's, it's going to be problems. Like you'll never be successful doing that. But as far as the seed business goes, that was pretty simple. I mean, we just got a lot of irons in the fire around the farm. And it was like, I think my dad kind of tongue in cheek, like, oh, you want to come back and be a part of the farming operation? Like, here's this, uh, you know, seed business I'm running out of my garage, you know? And like, uh, if you want the keys to that palace, you know, let's start there, you know? And yeah. so, but it was something that, that was natural for me. It was just something that was easy. And the cover, you know, bringing cover crops in was like one of the first steps that we did once I came back. And it was just because it's something that I'm very, you know, passionate about. It's something and what that, year was that? That would have been 2012. Okay. So yeah, the, I mean, the cover crop thing being 2012 though, it's not like this was super early into the company. The company had been 20 years old, yeah. just selling corn and soybean seed, though, just yeah. like a lot of other young farmers do, right. though. Yeah, Lots with a handful, a little bit of, seed handful of customers, you know, yeah. and just kind of selling to the neighbors and, you know. But then to evolve into cover crops in 2012, like, how did that come about? Because 2012 for, I mean, the grand scheme of Washington County, there have been guys using cover crops for way before 2012, but that was still kind of the very early age here of like this new kind of cover crop era. How did it come so about? How did well, you it was something that went? I was interested in. I probably at that time in my career was a pretty terrible corn and soybean salesman. And so I just thought, you know, going out there and trying to talk to people about something that everybody else was talking about was, was difficult, you know. And so this was something that I... I I had read up on, this is something that I was interested in. I had, you know, seen going on and it was just something that I was trying to fill as much information as I could, uh, inside of my, you know, very limited brain space. And so I, essentially what I was doing is just going out and spread, you know, talking to guys about it. And that, and that's really what, I mean, it wasn't any magic pill that we took or anything. It was just going out and having conversations and, and being present and, you know, trying to, see what guys needed and we've just evolved from there i mean it's just been an evolution of of guys hey i want to try this and i want to try that and you know so we just kind of it kind of evolved that cover so it says people say hey i need cereal rock can you give me that hey i want buckwheat can you give me that hey i want tillageradishes can you give me that and then you have a guy like michael vitito that brings you a list of like 45 different things and says hey can you find me this you're like yeah sure bud yeah i mean it, it was more it was more in the sense of i'm having this issue on my farm and us saying, well, you know, here's some, here's a different way that we can go about, you know, you've been trying to solve that issue for 50 years on that farm. Here's a different approach that we can go out and try and see if we can make some progress. And that's really what it, that's really what it was. All right. I do think like one thing that's worth noting, going back to the question of like, how do we do this on a more widespread level? You know, three to four to five years ago, um, that's really when we made the, we kind of recognized that as a problem. And we knew that education, you, that if guys were just walking into co-ops or well, guys were just walking into retail spaces and saying, 
like Mitchell was alluding to there, I knew, I want some cereal rye. Can you get me some cereal rye? And they take an order and then they ship it out the door. And then that guy has these issues that come with it. And the guy's going, well, I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, I got you the rye. Yeah, I got more you, you yeah, right. for me? That's, what, that's where my job ends, right? So we, we really went at, after aggressively trying to set up a distribution network of key dealers, guys that were like-minded, guys that were willing to try to push the peg on, on soil health and regenerative agriculture and everything that comes with that. Uh, and so we now have a distribution network throughout the Midwest in which a big piece of that is giving those people that, con- that, that someone to call, right? That's someone who they, could, they can lean on as they themselves have that personal growth and to be able to help other people adopt Cause, that. Because you definitely haven't like hit on enough. Stout Seeds today is not just one little location in Ainsworth, Iowa. Stout Seeds has some retail there right. out of Ainsworth, but you guys wholesale and have a massive network all around the country. Yeah, and it's, you know, it gets bigger every day. I think that's what Trent does a good job of, too, is when somebody's asking me about this, like, random cover crop that I don't know about or, like, what to, you know, what kind of cover crop to throw in an actual, you know, cattle forage blend, you got you to gotta know the right person to call. And when that person is there and local is huge, and it's great when they're, it's good to have like the extension person or the NRCS person or the soil health specialist or whatever. That's fine. But having somebody that's like there that can deliver the full solution to you though, too, like that's a big piece also. Yeah. Yeah. That takes, takes a lot of education to try and figure out where do you go with the entire system? Good thing. Trent is like a cover crop wizard now and has to learn all these different things so that when guys like Michael and myself call him, he actually knows what he's talking about or else we'll call him out. You could fit what I know in a very small box and what I don't know in this whole field, you know, Is that but, why but you have a tiny head. That's why I got a tiny head. You got it. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry. You left the door open on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also important to, know that this is a journey like it's a you know it's i hate that word like oh we're all on this journey right like can you cut that out please uh, but <laughs> that's i mean uh, this is the field this is, journey yeah this right yeah i'm so glad <laughs> you guys could be on my journey today part of the right? journey where we talk but it's, with a, Trent. it's really it is important to note that it is a process right and that people are on different levels within that process. So even going to social media, I think that that's a great resource. Don't get me wrong. I'm on a lot of those groups and there's a lot of great information shared, but a first time adopter to take advice from someone who's been doing this for 15 years is just not at the same level, you know, and, and you, so you got to be a little bit careful there. Zach, I think you've even seen a lot of that on people trying to throw different ideas and advice at you and stuff. And some of it is just way too complicated and way like trying to go to step 10 right away. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel when I when I want to get something done, you know, I c- come do stuff like this and I get all amped up in my head and I'm trying to figure out okay, what am I going to do now? And then I go home and it's like no, that that's like trying to take a drink from the ocean and I'm busy. Mm. Like I'm busy as heck. I can't I don't know, I don't honestly know what door to walk through first. Mm. But your point being like you're trying a different hybrid or you're trying a different like a different fertilizer blend or something like that, that's a little bit easier to fit into the system versus a different pass across the field with a different piece of equipment to plant this cover crop that hopefully it's going to grow. It's, you know, October 20th. We just harvested. What's going to happen? Well, that's why you got to buy it from Stout Seed because then you know it's going to grow. Ah, there Are it you is. willing to come apply it? Uh, I could probably line that up for you. But no, I'm, I, what, I, what I would say is that this goes back to exactly what we were talking about, right? It's about commitment, right? 
It's right. a, it's a, and, it's a, there is no guarantee. And there I will is. say that for sure. I'm, I mean, I'm not a bad, I'm not a good example of that because I have not committed to, so the stuff that we've tried, it's exactly probably the wrong thing to do, right? We want to try cover crops. Okay, call up an airplane, have them fly this on the end mm-hmm. of August. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. See, cover crops don't work. Or dad tried no-till a couple of times in the late 80s, early 90s. Took his planter out, didn't till the field in the fall, took it out in the spring, planted it. Huge failure. Right. And so it, from that point on, you know, he took that hit to the gut one time, and it was or a few times, mm-hmm. and it was enough for him to say, no, like I, I'm not... I'm not taking that risk anymore. He had a family to feed, yeah. which was awfully tough in the in the 1980s, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you go back to what you know works. Turn that mm-hmm. soil over, make it black, get it to dry out, mm-hmm. get that that nice seed bed, and use the equipment we have to do the best job we can. Mm-hmm. Did you know that uh, a living cover crop ground, like let's say that we had no-tilled ground, right, with a living cover crop in the spring, right, from the hours of 10 to 2, that ground's actually warmer. It's actually pulling more moisture than if you then versus the tilled soil next to it well i i believe you uh-huh. but i'm going to go back to a little bit of the i don't i wouldn't call it hypocrisy but i get told by the cover crop guys that you want your soil to dry out plant the cover crop it'll use evapotranspiration to pull the pull sure. the moisture out right and wick that moisture uh-huh. away so your field's actually going to dry out quicker and in the same conversation, they'll talk about how the cover crop is going to shade the ground and hold that moisture in, and you're going to have a lot more moisture in the soil, which is what you need. Mm-hmm. Not where a- I'm from. I, I almost never need more moisture. I'm trying to get rid of as much as I can. Sure. Rye, Rye does a great job at that. When Rye's living, it's actually pulling moisture, right? So actually, your biggest problem with a living rye crop is moisture management because it's pulling so much moisture out of the ground. It'll it's the it minute that you kill it, right? It's the minute that you kill it. Now it turns into a mulch and it locks moisture in. And that makes sense. Right. That definitely and makes so, sense. And so that's where the timing comes in. So we, we the NRCS is, when we, we battled this for years, five years ago, four years ago, maybe even three years ago, they were running around and it was like you had time, you had guidelines on when you, you had to kill it two weeks ahead of time. You had to do this and do that to manage that cover crop as a part of the funding. And like we go round and round with them because... You know, you just can't do that on no-till soils, right? Like, that's why everybody, the new movement now is like planting green, planting into right. it, right? Right. Because we want that rye to work for us and then plant into it and then again work for us once we kill it and lock that moisture in. Well, if you want to look at timing, to me, timing makes me nervous too, saying, well, you have to do this then and this then and this then because there are times when, let's say, I wanted to kill my rye two weeks before I come by and plant. I'm able if I'm able to get out there with the sprayer, I should probably be planting in my area. Yep. But now you add two weeks to it, and let's say ten days go by and I'm getting ready to plant. It might start raining for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Now I've got dead rye out there rotting that I can't even pull a planter through because it's pulling up root balls and tearing things. I've got a complete disaster on my 100%. hands. 100%. And that's what we've seen. And that's been the number one issue on fires that I have to put out is that the farmer did go out there and terminate it before planting. Because they were going to plant the next day. Well, then they got to rain and weren't able to plant the next day. And now it's a freaking jungle a disaster out there. That's why I say don't kill it ahead of planting. That's Plant been my green. thought process. Now, the key there, though, on what I think you need to do is do it in planting soybeans into it. Because we'll plant our soybeans into green cover crop and we'll wait anywhere from three weeks to eight weeks later. I got a huge window. I'm probably going to get a, an opportunity to go spray sometime in that three to eight week time period. Right. That opens up the window so much more. That's my first pass of herbicide, probably 
my only pass of herbicide. Now I'm saving lots of time and it's huge. And I am pumping carbon. I'm saving money. Last year, we saved $25 an acre on herbicides because of that. And so you're not putting down any kind of a pre-emerge. You're using the cover crop basically as your your pre-emerge. All we do in the spring is some dry fertilizer goes on in the spring with our nitrogen and sulfur and some some phosphorus and potassium. So dry fertilizer spread in like March, even end of February, and then plant. And that's it. Planter, because like to your point, Zach, when it's nice and everybody else is, is getting ready to plant, you get like springtime, it's like, you know, we're at the gate ready to ready to rock. And that first sunny day, that soil temperature hits 50 degrees or 47 degrees. And you're like, oh, it's going to get there this afternoon. We're going. It's and, cute to me that you guys down here worry about soil temp. Yeah. <laughs> Once the frost is out enough to push a planter in, we plant. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes you run into those heaves and you pull up a lot of mud. But we you know what would be it. interesting, I think, up there where you're in your neck of the woods, wherever that may be? Um, Canada, eh? It's, Canada. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're right next up. to the Yukon Territory. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we sell that to Canada at some point? I thought we did. But we anyway. bought it from them. Oh, okay. Um, anyways, what I would say is I would, I would be interesting to see whether that rye actually helps that frost come out earlier. That, 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 would, be, that would be one of my first questions, right? Like, I would like be, can, we, can we actually... Because we're harvesting sunlight, before we, because we're taking in photosynthesis, because we're creating this this activity that is giving us soil, increased soil temperatures, can we actually pull that frost out sooner? That would be that would be an interesting question. So you think the activity of the of the living plant might actually take the frost out quicker than the sun on the on the dark soil? Mm-hmm. Is what you're because what that you're rye, I don't think because that's rye science, right? grows at thirty five degrees. Yeah. So that above ground temp will be thirty five degrees, and you're still going to get that first inch or two of that frost but i'm worried about the frost layer that's three to eight inches that one that's the problem one because that top it's gonna it's gonna get hot and dry or hot and cold all the time day and night it's gonna freeze and thaw but down deeper that's where it's gonna stick and be a little tougher to to get it to move which five to six feet of frost is not uncommon for us sure sure but and at the same time, some of that comes back to how tall that rye can get in the fall. Whether you know that would that would yeah, affect. Yeah, can you things. get the so, roots down in mm-hmm. there? But I mean, those would be those would be questions that you know, from a discovery standpoint, if I was in your you know neck of the woods, like that would be something that I would be, you know, trying to figure out, right? I I think that that would be something that's of value to somebody. Just to expand on this, that some of this is management of expectations, right? It's it's really trying to hone down on what is the problem. What, what is it you want to accomplish? You know, there's this this saying that's kind of going around right now that's you got to find out what your goal is, you know? Well, sure. But if we go into this with a hypothesis of some type, right, that we're going to try to fix this area or we're going to try to see if we can accomplish these really narrow set of lists of things that we want to see to start. You know, when I said start small, start small with your expectation, right? Start small with what you want to get accomplished, and then let's expand on that. Let's let's not just go out there and say, we're going to take $35 out of our herbicide program and I'm going to increase my bushels on corn. Like those are just so wide sweeping of, of ideas to try to accomplish in year one that I think if you don't, you don't manage those expectations correctly, you could have a, a pretty poor. Right. I think that is good advice. You know, start small on your goals is, is probably on really the goal. Good yeah. Not on the, not on the actual attempt and because you have to manage the time. 
Right. At the but end of the day, you want to be profitable. You know, you want this profitability aspect, but that, that myself right there, just thinking about like, my goal is just, I want to be profitability. That's almost too big of a thing too, right? Like that's what got no-till really, that's what ended the no-till in some areas, right? It was because um, you had poor stands or you couldn't figure out, you know, with the, with not having that support system too, to try to work through some of those problems, it was just way too easy for guys to say, uh, I went from 250 bushel corn to 230 bushel corn. No-till doesn't work. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you're only looking at it from that lens, I think you could run into some some issues. But at the end of the day, yeah, there's got to be a dollar and cents to this thing to work. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying is, is that there are other things that may be building blocks to get you to that overall profitability um, level on your farm. That is it for Fieldwork today. If you guys want to catch up on all the great content and some of the not-so-great content from our series on Washington County, we've got it all collected on one page of our website, fieldworktalk.org slash conservation-culture. That is fieldworktalk.org slash conservation-culture. Our show is produced by Amy Baxter with lots of great help this season from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to the operations staff at American Public Media who helped out with recording and mixing our shows this season. We are once again at Fieldwork Talk on all of the usual social media channels. We've got some new content on our YouTube too, so make sure you check that one out. We do. Head over there, check out those videos to kind of catch up and see who it is that we're actually talking to in this series. Don't forget that we like hearing from you. Give us a call with your comments or questions. If you want to do that, it is 651-228-4810. Again, that is 651-228-4810. 